Beth Banks, Jason Curtis Shuck here with the Well Done Foundation. I'm the chairman of the board. Thank you very much for joining us today as we continue to follow the story known as abandoned wells and orphan wells. Curtis Shuck with Well Done, well Done Foundation has been plugging these for a little bit now, and his background goes into oil and gas as well. So uh, we thought we'd check in to see how his organization is doing. We saw there was some news out of Texas where they're looking at possibly bringing in some tax dollars to, to plug these wells. Uh, of course, North Dakota is doing uh, some shut-in wells, which are different than abandoned wells. We can get into that in just a second. But uh, how are you doing, sir? Doing great. No, thanks, Jason. It's always awesome chatting with you and uh, your listeners and bringing you guys up to speed on uh, what our project's up to. So let's just 101 it real quick. Elevator pitch while we go up to the fourth floor here. The difference between abandoned well, orphan well, and shut-in well. You bet. So orphan wells are pretty clear. You know, an orphan well is one that has no financial party uh, connected any longer through bankruptcy or, you know, any number of unfortunate events. The well has fallen into the hands of the regulator by default. And, uh, and then it again, essentially becomes a ward of the state. Uh, an abandoned well is a little bit more oblique <laughs> in that, uh, you know, typically that's one that an operator, uh, has sort of uh, disengaged with maybe is a politically correct term for that and uh, and is you know maybe considered shut in on the state books but you know shut in has a pretty limited shelf life technically uh, I would tell you that a well that's been shut in for more than five years is probably an abandoned well and not so much a shut-in well and then, you know, a shut-in well, a truly shut-in well from a responsible operator uh, is one where production has been curtailed, uh, there's control on the wellhead, and the operator continues to monitor the well uh, to make sure that it's in good standing. Is there a timeline for when it goes from shut-in to uh, abandoned or orphan at all? <laughs> well, there's a pretty... You know, it's it, it's a good question because it's uh, it's one that gets asked a lot, and and it is one that varies literally from state to state. So there's not a, you know, there's not a universally applied standard, if you would. You know, typically it's between twelve and twenty four months uh, that a well, is, uh, you know, is able to be you know technically shut in, uh, operator in good standing, is you know, like I said, just curtailing production typically it's due to market swings or or perhaps some level of maintenance that needs to be taken um and, and so that's again jason that's typically you know what, what we see i would tell you that a well ex that extends um beyond the five-year period and that's a, an important threshold that we can get into later but beyond that five-year period then it's pretty evident to the regulators and really to the industry that you know, there's there's likely uh, not an economic opportunity there any longer, and that something a little bit more affirmative needs to happen. And then, of course, in a you know a, an orphan well is kind of in a completely different sector, typically tied to bankruptcy, 
longer process. I mean, you may see the well sort of progress through those stages, right? So, you know, kind of goes shut in on the books, operators in trouble. Uh, then pretty soon the operator is gone. Well, then, you know, that well progresses into that sort of abandoned period because, you know, often it takes a while for, you know, those proceedings to make their way through the legal system. Uh, and then at the end of the day, uh, again, unfortunately, the state is the one that gets left holding the bag uh, or states are the ones that get left holding the bag. And that's how we end up or have ended up with, you know, literally 3.2 plus million uh, orphan wells in the U.S. Not to not. And that doesn't even take into consideration those abandoned wells, which is another staggering number. 3.2 million plus Orphan wells? Yes, exactly. And those are the ones that are... Conservative. You know, have, yeah, yeah, that have been listed. And, yeah. you know, obviously with the, you know, with the uh, market conditions such as they are today, and uh, unfortunate uh, bankruptcies being announced, what seems like on a weekly basis right now, the potential for, you know, that number to go up is pretty strong. You know, typically... In the in the industry, we see those uh, the uh, the orphans really being concentrated, uh, you know, typically in sort of the stripper fields, if you would, in you know, those areas that are not necessarily economic to produce any longer. You know, contrast, you're typically not going to see a lot of that going on in the Bakken or in the Three Forks. Um, or, you know, down into West Texas and the Permian, because, again, there's so much value, you know, in the basin still. But in some of these other plays that uh, are sort of at end of life, that's where it really becomes evident then. Um, and, again, we're not talking big oil. We're talking mom-and-pop oil, folks that are out there just trying to, make a living off of, you know, wells that are producing literally a couple of barrels a day. So I want to ask you a couple of questions first before we get into some of the work that you're doing uh, with regards to just the responsibility. And before we got on the air, we were kind of, at least I was kind of joking that it's, it's it, trying to be non-political with a platform these <laughs> days is like next to impossible because... You know, sometimes just reporting something that's already happened, people think that that's a political statement. And you're like, no, actually, that's not the case. And so, and I, I joked that it's almost like going a year without sugar. It's like almost next to impossible. So, yeah, I, I don't want I, I to get caught up on the political part of what I'm about to enter into, but there are some responsibilities here and some real questions that are probably difficult for industry and regulators and, and, and that sort of thing. Because if my understanding is correct, you know, I've been kind of tracking these orphan wells for the last four or five years, just more than probably the average person. And in most states, it is the landowner that at the end of the day is really on the hook for the orphan well. And in some states, there are in most states, there's like a deposit or some sort of money, a bond that's been put down. And I think in North Dakota, it's like five grand or 50 grand or something like that. And so that's kind of where my questions lie here as far as 
who's responsible for these and um, what are some of the safety precautions that were tried in the past? How's that for a sure. question? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good one because it's the, you know, it's the, the first one that gets asked oftentimes and, and I'll uh, do my best to, to provide, you know, uh, some answers or at least uh, some insight perhaps into that. So, so first of all, you know, uh, typically, uh, not always the case, but typically, as you're aware, that the surface rights and the mineral rights on a particular piece of property uh, don't always run together. Uh, oftentimes, they have, over the years, been bifurcated or separated. And so, you know, that sort of in, a, in and of itself helps to muddy the waters. You know, you mentioned the surface owner earlier. What I found, especially in the orphan well scenario, is that it's typically the surface owners that have sort of been left holding the bag, if you would. And I'll give that example in northern Montana, you know, where we're working right now. And, you know, the surface owners are the ones that have, you know, purchased a piece of ground, you know, down the road after, you know, multiple transactions. And, you know, they purchased the, you know, the ground, obviously, understanding that, you know, there's oil and gas activity. There's a separate oil and gas lease that's out there. And, uh, you know, they're left having to sort of, uh, I call it, well, I don't call it, one of our surface owners has recently called it the Top Gun School of Farming on some of this dry land weed acreage where literally they're out dodging, you know, uh, pump jacks or wellheads, tank batteries, buildings, you know, oil field trash that have been left behind by, you know, some of the operators that maybe weren't the, uh, oh, weren't the, uh, the, the best at housekeeping. And, and so they really don't have a recourse. So what they do is they rely on the state. Now, the state over the years has charged a bond and there have been bonds that needed to be put in place, albeit, you know, you mentioned earlier that oftentimes those bonds are a far cry from what is commercially required to actually plug and abandon the well. The good news is, Jason, is that the regulatory bodies uh, across the individual states have certainly have stepped up their games, um, you know, and it's, I look at it in terms of sort of looking back through the history is, you know, this journey of, you know, process improvement, if you would. And, you know, you look at folks and, and, you know, oil and gas operators from the turn of the century or, you know, mid-century and you know, some of their operating practices uh, are ones that would absolutely you know, flip us on our ear today just because there's no way that, you know, you could get away with it. But back then, based on the best available science and based on industry practice, that was acceptable. I think it's sort of the same thing for the regulators that, you know, there's been a lot of pressure put on the regulatory bodies through the industry, which, you know, is very strong in its influence. Uh, but now what we've found is that, you know, the regulatory bodies are certainly way more proactive um, in making sure that bonds are in place, that operators are in good standing, and that they're really, 
you know, sort of doing the you know, doing the job that they've been, you know, tasked to do. So uh, that's that's the challenge. And then, of course, you know, we've got industry in place, and industry is, you know, is always certainly looking at, you know, maintaining that balance between operational cost and regulatory compliance and you know doing the certainly doing the best job that they can given you know the available science if you would at the time and so uh, you know where that does is it sort of can lead to this area of conflict um, almost a three-way area of conflict between the oil and gas operator the regulatory body and the landowner. So what we do in a scenario like this, to your point exactly, is that, you know, we, first of all, the Well Done Foundation has a, what we call our triple bottom line. In order for a project to work for us, it's got to sort of hit on all three of those points. And, you know, the triple bottom line includes uh, industry, it includes um, the community, and it includes the environment. And, you know, we've got to strike that balance. You know, we're absolutely working with, you know, industry representatives, and both sort of at a, at a high level and, and those folks on the ground. You know, we've got to work with the community, which includes the surface owners um, and, you know, the, the, the folks in, you know, political office as well as the regulatory bodies. And so, uh, you know, that's absolutely key. And then we've got to do what's right, you know, by the environment, too. And so oftentimes where I kind of find myself is, is try to maintain the high road. And that high road for us at the Well Done Foundation is about uh, taking action and uh, and making it better than the way that we found it, versus throwing rocks at the guys that got us there. Because we found that that hasn't been very productive in the past. Obviously, it's not working; hasn't worked up to now. So, I think we need to employ a different uh, a different business model, which is exactly what we're doing. Um, and, and that is to really, you know, again, take that high road, let's stay focused on, you know, be a solutions based organization and, uh, and take action. Are you guys nonprofit for profit, uh, super PAC? How, how are you guys, um, um, getting checks written out to you these days? Yeah. So we're not for profit. We're, uh, we're a nonprofit 501c3. We, you know, we actually made that transit transition just recently a hundred percent it you know when we first started in the business we had the entity well done montana and we're focused on trying to strike that balance and it, it's really become clear jason that in order for us to stay on mission and stay on message it's just so much easier if we're you know and and non confrontational is we just focus all of our efforts on the nonprofit entity. And so uh, I would tell you that when, once we made the decision to do that about, you know, a couple months ago, that my life has been, uh, much more, uh, you know, intently simplified just through message and through focus of our mission. And, uh, and so that's, that's the direction that we're going. And I, it just makes so much more sense. Um, again, it's, at that point, you know, it, industry doesn't view us as a competitor. 
the regulators are able to look at us as as a as a friendly, not as a for profit entity that they've got to think about, you know, maintaining a level playing field across all the other for profit entities. So it's just made again, like I said, my life much more simple. That's interesting because one of the questions I did want to ask you is that if you're getting any sort of dollars from the regulators and or if you're expected to go through the operators and what I mean, excuse me, what I mean by that is, you know, it's pretty cool that you could have an organization that says, you know what, we're just going to specialize in orphan wells and abandoned wells because there's millions, plural, millions of them out there and there's enough business to go around and if we just stay focused on this as a private organization, we should be able to make this work. And the only realistic place that you can really get revenue from is the regulators. I mean, unless some rich landowner is going to write a check, but you know that ain't going to happen. So well, I mean, yeah. may, may, maybe it is, but you understand my point is that it just, I, I'm not sure that that keeping the same way of always doing things is the best course of action right now because, listen, everything's on the table and everybody's got to rethink how we do things. Doesn't mean we do it, but we have to rethink how we do things. And so maybe if the same, if, if we got into this mess one way, maybe we should look at some different ways to get out of this mess. And you mentioned being a solution provider and also by staying focused and not get involved in, you know, the politics of things and not get involved in, you know, the, the other ancillary things that can come, that can come out of this. So um, sorry to take over there a little bit, but I just was curious about, <laughs> well, because, you know, I was trying to figure out your marketplace and, you know, once you said nonprofit, I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense now, but uh, I wonder how the for-profit side went. So do you mind sharing that a little bit on, on why you were kind of felt the need to do the transition? Sure, you bet. Well, you know, we went down the path as any startup would uh, initially of raising capital uh, around our idea. And, and of course, um, you know, the, the patent answer was, you know, come talk to me once you have, uh, once you have your solution put in place. We believe Jason, that there is a market-based approach to addressing this issue on on a large scale, certainly for a number of the orphan wells or abandoned wells that will qualify for our for our program. And I'm going to talk to you about that here in just a second. But but I also wanted to to really press an important point right now. And, and that important point is that the Well Done Foundation uh, has not accepted a single dollar of public funding for the work that we're doing. And, and that's really by intent uh, because, you know, being, you know, out there in social media land and, and you know, fielding the, you know, plethora of questions and comments that, that end up coming our way, you know, the one thing that, that I've seen a lot of is a lot of reticence around, you know, that this should fall back on the taxpayers, you know, and there, there certainly are good cases to be made 
that there are, you know, there are or should be dollars that have been set aside or that industry has paid into certain funds that, you know, which vary state to state and on and on and on. But, you know, through any number of, uh, of pressures, you know, elected officials have found their way to sort of repurpose those dollars into other directions. And we're not certainly here to argue that, but, but the well done foundation, again, back to, staying on the high road is feel that there's a different approach. And, and honestly, what we're doing is, as I, I think I mentioned on our last show is that we're taking, as I said, a market based approach. And we feel that there is a, a carbon finance model that is available for, again, wells that qualify. Not every well is going to fit in that particular box, but you know what, at the end of the day, if we're focusing on on wells that are again, I mentioned carbon finance. So carbon finance, the basis of that is that there's got to be an emission factor uh, significant enough to have the, or make the economics work, right? So, and of course, you know, no well is created equal from from geologic formation to geologic formation, you know, based on depth and pressure and uh, you know, freshwater aquifers that are, you know, involved. So there's lots of variations, if you would, to this. But what we're working on right now, as I mentioned, is a, a carbon finance model that would allow us and others, it's not just us, but others, to, you know, to join us in this fight uh, and, and to be able to use uh, carbon finance then, offset credits generated through the elimination of uh, carbon dioxide equivalents. And, you know, we've entered into, uh, you know, we've been at this now for, oh gosh, about six months, uh, really intently working on uh, developing this carbon program. I'm happy to say that we've got some great partners with the American Carbon Registry, um, ACR, who is uh, supporting us. We just recently announced a partnership with a company uh, named Radical uh, out of uh, Calgary, Alberta, who is supporting us in the development of our carbon program. And we're hopeful that, uh, you know, by mid-2021, uh, we're going to have something that's uh, kind of a new tool in the toolbox, if you would, to your point, that will allow us to, uh, you know, to certain, take a certain number of our orphan and abandoned wells and be able to, to do things with. I think it's exciting that there are others that are on this parallel path with us um, looking at, at other um, financing options and you know, that are sort of focused on things like, you know, drinking water aquifer pollution or groundwater pollution for sure. And and I look at it like this, Jason, is that it's kind of similar to the North Dakota energy strategy, sort of all of the above. I really think that's the approach that we need to take with this problem, too. It's so big. Uh, there isn't a, a single silver bullet sitting out there. And uh, but our focus, again, as I mentioned, with our nonprofit is really uh, focusing on the carbon uh, finance solution is, again, as I mentioned, a market based approach. Yeah, the crude life, we're looking at inclusion, hope, service and awareness. That's our mission for 2021. 
and looking at the direction that the energy industry, specifically the oil and gas industry, I, I think they're at a crossroads where they really need to reinvent their image and, oh, yeah. and in a big way. And yep. they're, they're getting pressure from the banks now with the ESG certification. You mentioned that, that great phrase, carbon finance model. That's, just, that's, fa- that's right up a banker's alley. Um, are you seeing any of uh, this ESG certification, the, whether it be an ESG score, whether it be pressure, or just anecdotal things that are coming in from bankers? I've, I've seen it firsthand with Meridian Energy Group. I mean, William Prentice, if anybody wants to go back and listen to the interviews about the Davis Refinery, and uh, the, the Meridian Energy Group and the battles they've been having, they went out and got ESG certified just for the court cases and the bankers. And, I mean, they, they had to, basically. Cause yeah. are, are you Where are you seeing that with your business model? Have you, have you looked at that? Does it apply? Is it too new yet? Talk to me a little bit about what you're uh, absorbing with the ESG model here. Sure. Well, it's. I think it. To your point, exactly, is that the industry is needing to, uh, you know, direly needing to sort of uh, have a new level of awareness of sort of that social license, right, and the requirement for doing business. And and I would also say that it's not just oil and gas, and and we certainly don't want to single them out, but it's every industry. And, you know, because in today's world and in the U.S., it's a voluntary program, um, but we're seeing, you know, so many uh, large and small companies starting to make that commitment at varying levels to, you know, uh, awareness of their carbon footprint and ways that they can, you know, that they can uh, offset, uh, you know, their impact. We actually, uh, in this interim period, while we're developing the carbon finance program, the Well Done Foundation has actually trademarked our own version uh, of a carbon credit uh, and it's been trademarked as the, the Well Done Climate Benefit Unit, or CBU, which is essentially a, a unit of measure uh, that has a value. And we've already started uh, selling those units to uh, companies here in, uh, in Montana uh, and as sort of a, a Montana-made, uh, big sky, you know, grown uh, carbon unit. And you know, we're finding some really good reception to that. But I, I do think that into the future, and you mentioned that, that that's, it's going to become more and more of a, of a requirement for the oil and gas industry to be looking at ways to offset, whether that is, you know, through uh, efficiency in operation. So much of that is, you know, there is opportunity there just in day-to-day operations, kind of, you know, cleaning up house a little bit. The good news is, is that, you know, these companies now are really embracing that. They see that as it's a requirement. But, you know, eventually they're going to have to take it sort of to that next level because even through those efficiencies of operation and, and housekeeping and, and those items, it's still not going to be enough. And so, um, and that's where, again, carbon finance comes into play. There's also, you know, many other industries that are embracing this at, at a significant level. I mean, look at 
at Amazon and Google and Microsoft. I mean, the the commitment that they're making to offset credits is huge. And so, and it's, again, it's voluntary now, but, you know, talk about sort of that political landscape. And I think that, you know, we can all see that the writing's on the wall, uh, whether it's this cycle or next cycle or two cycles down the road. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I think it's something that we're going to be facing uh, pretty holistically, which is, you know, some level of a compliance market. And so, you know, for us to be able to, to generate those credits now is important. You know, what we love about the Well Done Project is the fact that, uh, that when we plug a well, uh, that emission stops immediately and it's, it's rateable, right? I mean, it's something that you can take to the bank, if you would, right away. We love forestry projects and planting trees, but, you know, that's the one cool thing about what we're doing is that there's a, a significant and immediate benefit. Well, I was going to ask you about that when you brought up the, you know, Amazons and Apples and the bigger companies. Everybody wants to plant trees. That, In fact, that's what we're doing with the industrial forest. But what you're talking about is is stopping leaks. And, you know, we, we, you know, we, we got our marketing kit done and, 10 million pounds of carbon consumed or I think absorbed. I can't remember what our wordsmithing landed on, if it was alliteration or not. But um, do, do you have any of those little clever marketing things, you know, like uh, 40 gallons of carbon spewed today <laughs> or anything like that? Sure. Well, you bet. You know, and I'll just give you a couple of uh, quick comparisons. And so, um, you know, uh, quickly, uh, uh, an automobile a typical automobile in the U.S. emits between 4.5 and 4 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. Um, you know, in the U.S., it takes about six trees planted to offset a single ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, the well that we just got done plugging this last week had a signature of 5,984 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent uh, emitted each and every year. And, and so you start to do the math on that of what it would take, how many cars it would take uh, to sort of match that, roughly 1,500, how many trees it would take to plant to offset that, roughly 39,000. Um, you know, we can make some real strides here, and uh, and that's what's that's what's interesting about this work we're doing. You know, uh, methane, which is the predominant uh, signature gas that uh, that certainly the wells that we're focused on are emitting. You know, it's got a it's got an impact or a global warming potential. Uh, over the 100-year strip of like 25 times that of carbon dioxide. So, um, you know, a little bit of that stuff goes a long way. And so, like I said, it's, uh, it doesn't work for every, uh, under every well model, but, you know, that's why our focus is really identifying those super emitters and then uh, prioritizing them for, for closure. I was down in Texas last week in Houston for a couple days and had a chance to talk to uh, Tom Slocum, who's doing the uh, documentary uh, down yeah. in Texas. And I know he's trying to get up to, to the Bakken and up to uh, your neck of the woods in order to 
get some filming up here. He's, you know, like most documentaries, they're, they're still fundraising throughout the. You know when you know how it is. You're changing. Oh, yeah. You're changing oil, going ninety miles an hour down the interstate. That's that's the way it goes sometimes. And um, yeah. but we were talking about you know the issue in Texas, and then of course that news story came out. One point seven billion or something along those lines was the study that they said the taxpayers would be on the hook for. And then, of course, that sparks a whole different conversation about, well, maybe it's more like $5 billion or, you know, everybody's got an answer is what I'm getting at. And so yeah. what was lost on me, though, is, is, is the conversation that the taxpayers are now going to be footing this bill, like, is that kind of what's going on in Texas? Is that the conversation they're having? Have you said, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I would tell you that it's, you know, whether it's 5 billion or 117 billion, it's still a whole lot of zeros. And It's more, and, it's more than a billion dollars. Let's just put it that way. It, it is. And, and obviously the taxpayers aren't super stoked to, to, you know, to be fitting, fitting that bill. And, you know, part of that, you know, part of that challenge is that, you know, it, especially if it's to your point earlier using the same old business model that we've always used so if we just throw more money at the problem is it really going to fix it i think we have to rethink the whole program and whether that means that you know there's some other folks that need to step into the queue there to lead the challenge uh so be it but i you know again i i don't know that uh just giving more money to the fix the same old problem is going to make it work. And that's where, well, this you know, is where, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think the work that Tom's doing down there is great in terms of, uh, you know, bringing awareness to it. I would tell you that we've got a great partner in Texas right now that we're working with uh, native state environmental. Uh, they're participating with us and, and uh, the carbon program. Um, and we've found that, you know, we're working with another group in Colorado right now. Um, we're working with a group in Kansas, uh, you know, looking at, you know, projects in California, Louisiana, Pennsylvania. I mean, there are, there are folks out there. And so our kind of our focus right now, Jason, is building this network and building our team so that when carbon finance hits, we're going to be ready to deploy at scale. And, uh, and who knows, again, if there are other tools in the tool bucket, and, you know, we talked about this earlier, is that, you know, you may have an orphan well that doesn't really have a carbon signature uh, or a significant enough carbon signature to, uh, say, finance the entire program. But perhaps there's a, there's a state or federal program because of the danger to the drinking water aquifer or the, drink, the danger to surface water, uh, that there's another program that qualifies. I think it's going to be an important, uh, an important component. Again, I mentioned earlier, another tool in the tool bucket to help us uh, address these problems across the country. Well, I'm sure that industry and state appreciates your being kind, but at the end of the day, it, all it takes is a Boy Scout mentality to leave a place better than when you left it, you know? And, yeah. and that's really what all we're saying here is that um, there's, there's all kinds of different safety from a big hole in the ground to the drinking water to the, the methane gas, but at the end of the day, they should be plugged just because it's the right thing to do. 
it's the right thing yeah. to do. And that's the part that I was kind of curious about because, you know, you're out there basically, you know, bootstrapping it. You're out there yeah. having to change your business model. You see an actual need in the marketplace that needs to be corrected. You provide a solution. You're going out there. You're bootstrapping it. You're busting your bump, that sort of thing. All of a sudden, I see this thing happen in Texas where they're going to pump a couple billion dollars of taxpayers, and I'm going, well, that's how they take them out because then they have all this big money that they just continue to give to the same people they've been doing business with for the last 10 years anyways, and it's a reactive thing. And that's the part where I don't know how to get the regulators and some of the other people to be a little bit more proactive. You know, you mentioned there are some places that are being proactive with this. How can we do, get that conversation to where down in Texas they are being proactive as opposed to reactive? And then, you know, some of the other states, and sorry to pick on Texas, but they were in the news last week or this week. So, <laughs> so, so sorry, Texas. But you, well, you understand what I mean. They, they, they got big shoulders, right? They got big shoulders. Just ask them, they'll tell well, you. Well, when you're being reactive, you're protecting the status quo. When you're being proactive, you're being beneficial to the to the to the masses, so to speak. So it that that's the general rule of thumb, and that's where I'm kind of going with this. That if there's some startups or bootstraps or nonprofits or this and that, and they're just going to get taken out in the end anyways, and get their ideas stolen, and hey, thanks for making awareness. Now see you later. That's kind of that's kind of part of the, the 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 whole thing that needs to change too, Kurt. Curtis, yeah. that's oh, that's yeah. that's where I'm going with this, I guess. So uh, you can go ahead and take that loaded hand grenade, and I guess go <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, you know, I just I want to I want to point out, and uh, you know, a very important uh, aspect, and and I want to give credit to the Montana Board of Oil and Gas um, for partnering with us uh, on our pilot projects here in Montana, and really. Um, you know, being a leader in the industry in terms of what by, you know, employing some creative thinking and by taking a little bit of a risk and, and sort of uh, segueing away from the, uh, the status quo uh, that, uh, you know, we've, uh, you know, they've endorsed our project. Uh, you know, we've formed, uh, you know, if you would, a public-private uh, partnership of sorts. And I think that it's a model that now they can hold up to other regulatory bodies across the U.S. of, look, you know, to your point, the same old way of thinking isn't getting us further down the road, right? And, you know, we need to, we need to be more creative in this. And I think they've done a great job. I think the state of North Dakota as well as taking a real proactive approach here. Now, obviously, there's different finance mechanisms there. But, you know, again, it's like we said earlier, this isn't a cookie cutter. And I think just the fact of being open to having these conversations is really important. I found that, that you know, what we're doing here in Montana really makes some sense to other regulatory bodies. So as we've been working you know, in the state of Kansas, for instance, uh, introducing our program or, you know, a little bit in the, in the state of Colorado, introducing our program. You know, the fact that we're able to say, look, you know, go talk to the Montana Board of Oil and Gas and and let them tell about their experience in working with the Well Done Foundation. 
then, you know, that's a huge benefit. And it sort of, it takes a little bit of that, uh, oh, a little bit of that, uh, uh, sort of that, uh, that concern off of the table. And, you know, we're all on the same team here. And to your point, our whole focus is just, you know, doing the right thing. And you can't, I don't care who you are, you cannot walk out and see the condition of, and I don't care whether you're in Pennsylvania or Kansas or, or, you know, Montana or North Dakota and, and see the condition of these wells and have any inkling at all that that's okay at any level. Right. And so, and that sort of was my story is, you know, is that, you know, I just couldn't unsee what I saw and felt compelled that, you know, if I didn't do something about it, I couldn't just turn my back and say, you know, it's really somebody else created the problem. It's really somebody else's issue to deal with. It just sort of fell on my shoulders and, you know, been very fortunate and blessed that we've had a lot of folks that have joined us in this fight and we're excited to see where it's going next. I really think that the future of oil and gas is going to be a lot of solution-based uh, marketing. Now, what I mean by that is they need to keep doing business as usual because, let's be honest, it's, it's not an easy industry. And what's happened to the oil and gas industry is the same thing that happened to the agriculture industry in that the grocery store replaced the farmer. The light switch yep. has replaced the oil and gas worker. So the, the, the average person's out of touch. They don't understand where their, where their energy comes from in the same way the average person did not understand where their hamburger came from. And that's, you know, whether it's by design or not, that's just the way it goes. And because of that, this whole climate change and um, this whole climate activism movement is real. I mean, I, I watched what happened in Colorado. I've, like I said, I've, we've been following the Davis refinery since day one and their scrutiny that they've been going through. So this is a real deal. And so when I take a look at the direction that the oil and gas companies need to go, not should go or have to go, no, it's, it's already too late. The, 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 the body of work is done. I mean, you got presidential candidates not talking about banning straws. They're talking about banning the industry. I mean, they leapfrogged plastic bags and went right to the industry. Are you kidding me? That's like, <laughs> well, that's ridiculous talk. You know that. I mean, 96% of what we use on a daily basis requires petroleum. Not coal, but petroleum. Not, not, um, not renewables, but petroleum. I mean, it's, it's from our toothpaste to our toothbrush to how the heck we got our toothpaste and toothbrush. So going into a crowded theater and yelling fire shouldn't be enabled in today's politics, but it is. You know, that's a real, I mean, what I mean is that saying we're going to ban fracking, that's a really, really irresponsible thing to say to where the media should have held uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I think those were the first two to come out and do it. They should have held them accountable to say these presidential candidates want to ban fracking, but they have no solution in place. I mean, because that's the story is there's no plan. So I didn't want to get political there for a second because we try, you know, we want to stay out of it. But it it needs to be sa said that when you've got presidential candidates trying to ban your industry, it's probably time to take a look at your image and solution based marketing. I think is the future of oil and gas. Does that term make sense? Solution based marketing. Absolutely. I you know that's just a, a different way of doing business and. 
And, you know, to, like we talked about social licensing earlier, you know, for a period of time, it was all, and, you know, and we lived through this in the Bakken, Jason, and for a period of time, it was all about safety, right? And making sure that we could get our product safely to market, um, you know, and, and now it's about doing things better. I mean, you're right. I mean, our, our economy is, you know, reliant on oil and gas. Our, you know, way of life is really reliant on energy at every different, uh, at every different aspect. But, but honestly, we've got to do it better. And I do think that the industry is, is aware, is aware of that and is starting to embrace that. And it's through these various programs that, uh, that I think that they're going to be able to get there. And, I'm excited, honestly, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, change is, uh, change is unsettling and, and often frightening, but, you know, here's this opportunity to reinvent ourselves. And, you know, for those who are going to kind of drag their heels, kicking and screaming, probably not going to go good for you. Right. But for those in the industry that are really leaning into this opportunity, I think that it's a whole new way of doing business. And to your point, opportunity for solutions-based marketing is going to be important. You know, let's get in front of the curve. Let's not let's not be drugged behind the bus. I was talking with one of the mayors of a oil town, you know, oil and gas town today. We had a great conversation. We're going to be announcing a project in their their community very shortly, and we'll keep you posted on that. But he he brought up a good point, which is. The oil and gas community really needs to understand everybody has a cell phone. Therefore, everybody's a reporter and everybody's, <laughs> everybody's looking to, you know, be the fail photo of the day. He, his words were, you give them an inch and they will take a mile. And he didn't mean, he didn't mean necessarily environmentalists, but that was the context of what we were talking about. He was referring to basically anybody that wants to, you know, try to act like they're making a difference type of a thing. And I, I think that the old kind of oil and gas uh, mentality doesn't recognize that at times. And, and that's where I'm getting with the solution-based marketing, that by, by going that direction, by having the conversation shift a little, little bit, I think you're going to see that you know, inch turn into a mile, get impacted a little bit more and more on a positive side of things. I sure hope so. And, you know, it's, it's time for us to find that common ground and time for us to figure out ways to work together and, uh, and, you know, to leave it better than the way that we found it. I mean, that's to your point, that's a, that's a common core principle, right? I think that, you know, everybody, uh, everybody agrees with that at some level or another. I, I don't believe that there's anybody that wakes up in the morning and, and says to themselves, I'm going to see how hard I can suck today. I think they wake up and say, you know what, I want to maybe try a little bit harder or do a little bit better. And so if we can come up with some of these uh, opportunities to work together, whether it's one well at a time, like we're doing it, or when we start scaling up at, you know, 10 and 20 and hundred and a thousand wells, then, you know, again, it, but it, the, the outcome is the same, right? And if we can come together around this and agree on that, then, you know, set the politics aside and let's do what's right. 
Well, how can people get in touch with you? Give you some money to go plug some wells and uh, go go you know make the world a better, cleaner place. Yeah. Well, we hope that they uh, have a chance to visit uh, our website at www.welldonefoundation.com or welldonefoundation.org and uh, and check us out and you know it's not just about giving money we've got volunteer opportunities um you know this is uh we're a grassroots we're a grassroots program for sure but uh, you know we've got some great momentum we've got some fantastic partners that we're working with right now and uh, and more to come and so we're excited and and we really hope Jason, that, that we inspire others to do, uh, you know, a similar type of a mission in, in other areas, because again, it's, we, you know, we understand that this is bigger than, than us for sure. Uh, and, and bigger than many of us, but if we start working together, then we're going to continue to accomplish great things. 